Well, um, it may not surprise you that I offered all of the topics in our series to the preaching team to see who would like to preach on what. <laughs> and you can guess why I'm left with this one. So therefore, Rachel is going to very kindly help. And, um, and I would just say before we begin that in everything that we've dealt with in this sermon series, we've said at the beginning of each ser sermon, we're not going to deal with the whole thing that morning. So to deal with the whole of like sex, what it's all about, different issues, etc. We're never going to get there in one sermon this morning. So I hope that um, perhaps during the week you'll find either a friend or your life group or whoever who could pick up some of these things with you and help you to explore a bit more about it. Um, have we got the visuals? Uh, is that happened? Oh, brilliant. Good. Right. Over to you, Rachel. So for a long time, church has had some topics it's happy to talk about and some that it's avoided and sex would almost certainly fit on the let's not talk about it list. And there are a few reasons for that. Some people would put it on that list because it's very personal and perhaps they feel it's too personal to talk about in church. You may feel like that today. And while we don't want to make any of you feel uncomfortable, we do believe that it's still an important topic to discuss. God cares for us deeply and he seeks to be involved in all areas of our lives even or maybe especially the personal ones so if we avoid teaching and thinking about personal things it lays a huge part of our lives open to misunderstanding or a lack of godly wisdom if we don't talk about sex in church then when will we consider what god has to say on the matter and therefore what we should believe or do about it where is the appropriate place to talk about it is it in our home groups or our prayer trips or will it just not get talked about at all other people maybe don't think sex should be mentioned in church because it can be a very divisive thing. And we will come back to some of those aspects in a bit. By that, I mean that we are all in a variety of relational situations. Some of us are married, some are single, some are divorced, some may be widowed, and some may be same-sex attracted, and so on. I think as a church, we worry about causing offence and by talking about it, and so the church has been mostly silent for fear of causing hurt. Our hope today, though, is that you would find this helpful. Matt's going to talk about what our culture says about sex, and then we'll look at what the Bible has to say and how that might impact us. We're not going to focus so much on the do-nots as on the celebration of the gift that sex is intended to be, and hopefully rebalance some of the messaging Christianity has had on sex. Brilliant. First of all, though, could you just turn to the person next to you, if you're happy to, and ask them, what sex ed did they get either at school or at church, if any? So shall we start? Who had no sex education at school at all? A few of you, okay. Um, Most of the room at the nine o'clock service, wasn't it? It was, nearly everybody. <laughs> Who had, so I had the, the I've, I'm not allowed to use Practicality. 
practicalities. I've been told I can't use the word nuts and bolts today. Who <laughs> <laughs> put it in the talk? I said you cannot use that phrase. But anyway, who had, who's, uh, mine in school was all practicalities. Did anyone else have one of those talks? Yeah, it was basically about how do you not get someone pregnant and not catch any diseases? Yeah? Did anyone have any that talked about relationships? Yeah. One, maybe two. Interesting, isn't it? And so as we kind of think about this, our culture and the Bible is going to kind of help us in both regards. Um, what about church? Who's had any teachings about sex in church? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah? I think I've heard no sermons on it at all. So it's one of the reasons that we wanted to kind of touch on it today, just to kind of think a bit more about um, about some of the questions to do with it, really. Um, oh, there we go. Right, this is a rough guide to generations. And if you can see it, you might be able to work out which generation that you are in. So the silent generation. I don't know why they're called the silent generation, but they are. That's the kind of 1920s and 30s. I don't think they are very silent from the ones I know, <laughs> but anyway. Then you've got the baby boomers, which are the biggest generation. So that was apparently a million births a year. And it's one of the reasons why nearly the whole of society has been targeted towards baby boomers, because they were the dominant generation for so long, and really still are. Uh, you've got Generation X, which is kind of the 60s, 70s. You've got the millennials, which is like 70s, 80s-ish, which is me. Um, and then you've got the Generation Zs, which are kind of just before the 2000s, or kind of 90s, but mainly kind of into the 2000s. And there are huge differences in generational understandings of sex, what it's about, what's right and what's wrong. Some of this won't surprise you at all. So if you uh, took, for example, the people before the 1960s, they would generally say sex belongs in marriage, that sex outside of marriage is wrong. And when they do surveys, your average person in that age bracket has had between one and two sexual partners in their lifetime, which isn't really a surprise either because they've either been married once, not at all, or perhaps twice. That generation, interestingly, is having more sex than almost any other generation. So people in their 70s are the people who are apparently are having the most sex, more than people in their 20s, more than people in their 30s. You're all kind of whispering to each other, like, <laughs> is that true? <laughs> but apparently it is, which is fascinating, isn't it? Like, how has the emphasis changed in different parts of life? Moving on from there, as we got kind of to the 60s and way up to the 90s, like that whole thing was a gradual drift to saying sex does not have to be within marriage. Sex can be in all sorts of relationships or in no relationships at all. And so marriage gradually changed order. So instead of people saying, I get married, then I have sex, then I have children, etc., the order has switched around. And so I would say it's been a very rare situation that I've married anybody who is not already living together and already having sex together. The order has changed for most people in our culture. The ethics of sex also shifted from a right and wrong based on rules or religion to based on two principles. One is harm. So is it harming anyone? If not, it's probably okay. And the second principle was about consent, which has become much, and I think rightly, more important, that both people should agree. That wasn't always the case if you look back in the history of our country. 
The church also has moved. A lot of churches have moved their teaching in this area. A lot are saying, well, we need to reinterpret the Bible. We need to make it say slightly different things because we're not happy what it does say. And therefore, you're left with two issues. One is, do we say the Bible was never inspired in the first place? It was just a human book of human ideas, in which case we can scrap those bits we don't like. Or do we say God did not see society changing? God was somehow wrong-footed. And he was like, oh, well, I made the rules, but it was for back then. But society's changed, didn't know that was coming. So let's ignore that bit. And of course, from what we know about God, we know that God isn't wrong-footed. And he does know what's coming. There are, of course, some areas where it is quite clearly cultural what the Bible teaches. So, for example, um, it has things to say about tattoos. It has things to say about men with long hair. Like it has things to say about female head coverings, and I can't see any women this morning covering their hair. <laughs> so it has some things, but they're obviously cultural. So for example, at the time when it, read, it wrote about head coverings, if you had your hair out, it was a symbol, you were a prostitute. Well, that isn't our symbol anymore, so therefore that rule doesn't apply in the same way. But for a lot of what we find in the Bible, the rules haven't changed God's ideas about what's right and wrong with sex stayed the same all the way through the Bible. And Jesus didn't change them either. And so we're left with these kind of quandaries about what do we do. Looking at our culture again, with the growing number of people having sex outside of marriage, that's caused huge differences, hasn't it? Huge variety in our society. So for example, uh, my kids' schools, if I asked them and said, what relationships are your friends' parents in, there would be a massive variety. Some would have the same mum and dad, some different to their siblings, some would have a mum or a dad, all sorts of different things, some of which, not all of which, but some of which is down to changes in how we see sex. At the same time, the age of getting married has changed. If you were born between the 50s and the 60s, the odds are you got married at about age 22, 23. Now, the average age is about 33. It's quite a lot lower amongst Christians, by the way. And you'd probably be able to work out why it's lower among a lot of Christians. <laughs> but that's kind of one of the things that's happened. A fascinating thing in our culture is this generation, the Generation Zs. And if you've done any reading about them, they are a really interesting generation because they are a kind of U-turn on former generations. They are a generation having less sex, having less sexual partners, and are much more pragmatic. And to give you an idea of what I mean, when Rachel and I met, she could have lived somewhere horrible like Hull. And I would have said, does anyone love Hull? You love Hull. Thanks, Rob. She could have lived somewhere horrible like, I don't know. Okay. Don't offend anyone else. But I would have said, I love you. I'll move where you live anyway. Even if I've got to have a job I hate, I'll move with you anyway. But more and more, this generation, the Generation Zs, are more pragmatic. Well, I want a job in Liverpool and you want a job in London. So that probably isn't going to work. So we'll just do long distance for a while. There's a much more pragmatic understanding. Perhaps, you know, I'll make sure that I've got my finances together before. I'll make sure I've made lots of other sensible decisions before. Whereas I think for former generations, they were like, we just want to be together. 
And we're going to throw some of that other stuff to one side for a minute. Asked about the purpose of sex. Our culture generally has two different versions of sex. One is, I have sex with you because I love you and I want to communicate something. And the other is, I want to have sex with you because I have a strong urge and I find you attractive. And so there's these two very different understandings of sex that are going on. A lot of this comes through in our sex education. If I went more towards the start of this generational curve, sex ed was actually quite positive. If it existed at all, sex is a good thing. Then we go on to kind of the 1980s and so on, where sex was all about practicalities. And then finally today in schools, there is a bit more about relationships. Is it a good idea to have sex with that person? Why are we doing that? Where does it fit in terms of the trajectory of that relationship? So that's a little bit about our culture. But what about us as believers, as the church? What should we think? What should our take on sex be? At the outset, I wanted to note a few things. Firstly, that a single life where an individual is not having sex is not necessarily, or it isn't, it isn't a substandard life. At times, our culture seems to view sex almost as a human right, something that all people should have, and that to live a life without it is seen as somehow worse or less good. This, of course, is not something that's taught in the Bible. Our culture has inflated the value and the importance of sex so much that it has failed to appreciate that for a whole range of reasons, some people may not choose to have sex, either because they're single or they don't want to, because they've experienced violence or abuse in this area, or for a whole range of other reasons. And the Bible in no way indicates that a life without sex is any less fulfilled than one with it. So if you find yourself questioning the value of your life because you're single, as if somehow you're being cheated, hear God when he says that you are not. Jesus was single and therefore didn't have sex, and yet his life was totally fulfilled, and so can yours be. I think we need to keep sex in the right perspective. Jesus seems to teach that marriage and therefore sex will not exist in heaven, and yet that won't be a substandard existence. And sex within marriage is only one way of showing affection and of demonstrating and forming a bond with the other person. And so let's not fall into the same trap as our culture of elevating sex inappropriately. Secondly, it's worth flagging up that sex can be an area of difficulty in a lot of marriages. An imbalance of sex drives can cause problems. Past experiences of sex brought into the marriage can again raise issues. Physical difficulties, some medications and or age can cause problems. And so we want to address what the Bible teaches and how we might inhabit that teaching with an awareness that for many couples, it may not be straightforward. And perhaps there have been few obvious confidential places to come and talk about it and be prayed for. Thirdly, we're not victims of our sexual desires. It may be that some here have struggled with an addiction to pornography. Some may have contemplated or succumbed to having sex with someone other than the person they're married to or dwelt on a desire to do so. Some here may have felt an attraction or a desire to people you know it would be wrong to be with. But none of those desires define us. We're not victims of our desires. All of us have desires that we need to fight against, perhaps with help from others in doing so, and that is normal 
It's just a part of the Christian life. Knowing that the struggle isn't uncommon may not make it feel any easier, but it also doesn't mean that we should just throw our hands up and claim that we can't fight these urges. There's no way to overcome them because we can, and God gives us the strength to overcome when we feel tempted. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus helps those who are being tempted, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the only temptations you have are the temptations that all people have, but you can trust God. He will not let you be tempted more than you can stand, but when you're tempted, God will also give you a way to escape that temptation. He does ask, though, for us not to walk into temptation. In fact, he calls us to run from it. And by that, I mean avoiding putting yourself in a situation where you know you'll be tempted, perhaps before you're married. If you're trying not to have sex with each other until you're married, sharing a bed is not a good idea. Um, and we must take those escape routes that God provides, put in those boundaries. The Bible has much to say about sex, but before Matt gets into that, I want to consider what the church has communicated about it in the past. I think if you were to ask a non-Christian if the church has a positive view of sex, most would say no. In fact, looking at online surveys, people say things like, the church thinks the only purpose of sex is to conceive a baby, that we peddle a shame-filled narrative, or that the Bible teaches only that women must fulfill men's needs, like sex is only to benefit the man. Particularly, the church's perception on female sexuality has been far from celebrated, and a good example of this is the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And this is the idea that Mary wasn't just a virgin before Jesus was born, but that she remained a virgin for the rest of her life, because in this argument, virginity equals purity. Of course, there is the insurmountable question of where Jesus's siblings came from, but the other question is surely why? Why would it make Mary impure if she had had sex after the birth of Jesus, or even that she'd liked sex? What would be wrong with that? And if, as I say that, you feel a bit discomforted, you might want to ask yourself why. Have we somehow accidentally ended up with the idea that sex is dirty, sinful, or wrong, or perhaps that not having sex and abstaining is somehow a purer state of being? I think the idea of sex being dirty springs in part from the passage we had from Romans about the flesh and the temptations we face, the tendency from this is to say that unless we're trying to conceive, there is something inherently sinful about the desires that come from our bodies. This, though, leaves us with the really odd idea that bodies and the desires they cause are somehow inherently bad. But we know that none of God's creation is bad. God, of course, made man and woman with bodies and said that they're good. That's quite a lot so far, isn't it? <laughs> Do you want to just take a moment and just have a little thing? Is there anything that you, a question that's come up? You can talk to someone here if you like. If you don't want to, that's completely fine. Something that struck you, something that you've made you think, oh, what about this? So just take a minute, have a think. My phone friend. Augustine, who was one of the early sort of church fathers, had this kind of funny idea that, um, that when you had sex, you became like an animal, and therefore you should do it as little as possible, because it was sort of a corrupting thing. Like, we were made in the image of God, and we're all wonderful, unless we have sex, and then at that point, we become like a beast. And so I think we need to really get away from that and reclaim that actually, this is God-given. 
This is a good thing from him. So turning to the Bible, the first thing to say about sex is that it was God's idea that he invented it and he made it to be good. I think it's just us and dolphins who enjoy sex. <laughs> Remember reading a book about, uh, not a book. Not, that wasn't anyway. in the script. Sorry, that's not in the script. <laughs> but it is interesting, isn't it, that God made it fun. Like he could have made it not fun, but he did. Um, and so God tells Adam and Eve to go and to be fruitful. And we know that he doesn't mean gardening. He meant them to go and <laughs> do what they did. Um, and there's an awful lot in the Bible about they lay with each other and they knew each other and all sorts of other kind of code words for <laughs> they had sex together, basically. And then we get the Song of Solomon, which I just think is a brilliant book. Um, apparently, it was taken out of young Jewish boys' Bibles or Torahs. It was ripped out because it was considered too steamy for them. <laughs> But there's a few things that you might have noticed. The first thing that I love about this is it, it's the woman saying that how much she really wants to be with the man. And I think so often we kind of dumb that down and say, you know, I don't know what we do, but somehow, like, female sexuality isn't celebrated in the way that it could be. That almost sex is a thing that's for men and not for women, which is obviously rubbish. If you read on, the man and the woman are in love with each other, and so they show that to each other by their physical intimacy. There is no sign, by the way, that they're having children. I don't know if you noticed that. So that sex is for children, but also it's for a whole range of other reasons. So this is one of them. That it's for showing love to each other. The Bible encourages married couples to enjoy sex. It's a good gift. I don't know if you're married this morning, if sex is to you a good gift. I think for a lot of married couples, it's a complicated gift. Mm. It's a gift which sometimes seems to be going very well and sometimes isn't and has a whole bunch of complications with it. But I would just encourage you, it is a good gift. God only gives good gifts. And so if at the place you're at the moment, it doesn't feel a good gift, have some prayer, maybe seek some advice, keep talking to each other. There will be a point at which it will be a good gift to you, whether that's full-blown sex or whether that's physical intimacy of some other kind. God means it to be a gift to us. Sex is a bond, the way that we are formed together as man and woman to become one flesh. It's a mysterious thing. Mm. I don't think I could fully explain it to you. There's this sort of idea that there is a joining together of man and wife. We talk about it in the marriage ceremony. But there isn't much explanation because we don't really understand it. It's a bit like Christ and the church, we're told in the New Testament. There's this kind of bond that happens that unites us. It's one of the reasons Corinthians in chapter 6 tells us don't unite ourselves to other people. Don't have sex with prostitutes or other people because we are forming a bond with that person. So sex is for making children. Sex is for intimacy. Sex is to show emotion. And sex is to bond us together. But how perhaps have some of these generational views impacted on Christians of those different generations? And if you take surveys at all seriousness, at all seriously, um, the gradual drift has been for Christians to say, I don't think sex is just for marriage anymore. And certainly if you talk to Generation Z, they are largely saying the following, that God would not want to say no because I'm in a loving relationship. That's what you typically hear, even from Christians in many, many churches up and down the country, that God only cares about whether it's loving, and if it's loving, then it must be okay. And there's this understanding, this belief that how could God possibly ask me to wait? It's not possible. 
If I had to wait until I'm like 33, I just couldn't do it. If I had to wait till I was 25, I just couldn't do it. That's not reasonable. I remember teaching a youth group a while ago and had exactly this conversation. We were, I was talking to some teenagers and they went, we just can't. We know it would be a good thing if we waited. We know it's God's plan, but we just can't. And so as long as it's loving, maybe God's okay with that. But actually that isn't one of the things that we're allowed to do. If sex by purpose is to bond people together, then we can't turn around to the inventor and go, I don't think so. I, I think it should be for a different purpose. God's plan is for it to be within marriage where that commitment is and therefore where that bond makes sense. Sex is a wonderful gift, but it is a gift with guidance. Our culture may say that's ridiculous. I remember doing a wedding about three years ago and we were on the session where we talk a little bit about sex. And they said, does the church still teach that thing about sex being within marriage and not outside of marriage? And the other person went, no, it doesn't. Pretty sure it stopped talking about it. Fascinating, isn't it? Like that actually the church has stayed silent and therefore the world thinks we've just changed our minds in line with where the world is. But Corinthians says the wisdom of the world is considered foolishness by God. That the world may say we've changed the goalposts. But God says, no, this is my plan. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he'd had lots and lots of sexual partners growing up. And he said, I always thought you were missing out, but now I see it makes sense. And I think it often takes that bit of time for people to really understand that the wisdom of God is actually wisdom, after all. So what do we do with all of this? Um, what should our response be? For those of you who are unmarried, for whom the Bible says you shouldn't be having sex yet, or those of you who have desires that God says shouldn't be acted on, All Saints wants to be somewhere that you can feel supported and encouraged and find intimacy and companionship of a different kind. You may feel this morning that you want prayer, or maybe you're not brave enough to, to access that this morning, but you know, know that that is on offer to you. Perhaps uh, you need to find an accountable relationship with someone who can be asking you those difficult questions. How is your relationship going? How are your desires going? Have you done anything that you know that you shouldn't? Today might be the start of you praying about who could do that for you. You may be thinking that you've messed up in this area and need to know that you're forgiven. And if so, can I encourage you that confession isn't just for Catholics, it's actually a biblical principle that we can confess our sins to any other committed Christian and they don't forgive us, only God can do that. They can kind of pronounce God's forgiveness on his behalf. But somehow naming your sin out loud to another Christian who you trust kind of brings our lives into the light where the darkness cannot win and the enemy has no power. I would say though, choose carefully um, who to go to, though you can come to us or someone else that you know and trust, who you know will be sensitive and keep confidence, and who would be able to do that for you. Um, it may be that you're married, and that this is a part of your marriage that isn't easy, that you struggle with. It may be a cause to get you talking um, with your partner and praying together, and perhaps seeking help and prayer from another individual or a couple when you both agree um, to do that. Or it might be that you just want your marriage and your physical relationship to be enriched and blessed by God again, in which case we pray that you would know God's blessing on that today. Perfect. 
Um, we're going to worship again in a bit, but um, one of the reasons we have this second bit of worship, and you might be wondering, is to enable people to have prayer. And so I thought I'd mention just a couple of principles in prayer, if that's all right. The first one is that prayer is good. And so if you haven't been prayed for in a while, you might want to be prayed for this morning. Could be for whatever you like. Um, the second thing is prayer is normal. It's not just for problems. I've been in churches before and sitting next to people and someone else on the road gets up for prayer and you can tell them twitching and going, don't know what's going on in their life. But prayer isn't for that. Prayer is for those things and it's also for many other things as well. I've been for prayer lots of times just because I wanted to meet God better. Prayer won't always be linked to that Sunday. It could be for anything that you like. But prayer is always going to be confidential and is always going to be helpful. And I thought it will always be a good thing. Could you just give us a wave if you're on the prayer team? Can you wave higher? Is that possible? <laughs> there we go. Brilliant. Right. So we've got quite a few people on the prayer team. Um, so in a minute, Dave's going to come and lead us into worship. But if you'd like prayer, the prayer team are going to be out there. And they're going to be around. Or if you want prayer with a neighbour, you can. And nobody's going to go, I wonder why they're having prayer. It's the sex week. Because you could be having prayer about anything. So we're going to agree not to ask each other if that's all right. <laughs> and if you think, oh, actually, I don't want prayer this morning, but I do want prayer during the week, then get in touch with one of them or get in touch with me and we'll go from there. Is that all right? Okay, I'll just pray for us and then we'll worship together. Father, we thank you for sex. We thank you, Lord, that it was your invention and that you know what you're doing. And Lord, we pray that you would just fill us with hope this morning. Whatever situation we're in, fill us with hope. Hope that there's nothing so bad we can't be forgiven for. Hope that things will change. Hope that we can find intimacy with you. Hope that your gifts are good. Hope that your plans for our lives are good. Lord, fill us with hope and joy this morning. And Father, fill us with hope that your paths ahead of us are ones you're going to walk with us on. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.